Hey, folks, uh, before we begin, um, just a real quick note. I received an email from uh, one of our Patreon supporters, Chris, um, and uh, he had some, you know, some kind things to say, which is always really nice. And he also had a, a recommendation for a future show that we're going to definitely pursue. Um, but also uh, he said that, that uh, in his opinion, we should have more Patreon supporters than we do. And Chris, I wholeheartedly agree. So if you're listening to this and you like the show, take a look at the show notes. There's a link there to um, support us financially. And that does go a long way in helping us make the show. Thanks, and uh, here we go. But it's amazing how these numbers just keep coming down. It's blowing my mind right now. It is crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. I think they're going to bottom out soon because... I mean, they have to. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hard yeah. limit. But I think also, yeah, we can talk about it, but I think the other big thing is that people are now really buying into it and training it. And I think yeah. that's one of, the, one of the biggest points. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Uh, joining Andrew and myself is for the, I want to get this right because I, I, I mucked it up last time when we had Michael Erickson on when I said it was his second time and it was actually his third. I think it's your second, Kurt, right? You're, you're coming back for your first time? Yeah. So we've got Kurt Bergen-Taylor of uh, Cycling Canada joining us again to talk about, specifically to talk about aerodynamics. Um, and this all came about because one of his friends uh, and someone he used to work with uh, there was a, a photo of this individual, and this is Dan Bingham, who um, was famously with Hugh Watt Bike and uh, a, quite a strong uh, cyclist himself. There was a photo of him uh, breaking, I believe, the UK 10-mile TT record, and it just, you know, he looked super fast, and it was, a, it was an awesome little photo. And then, um, and then Kurt, so I posted it to our Slack channel, and then Kurt uh, told me what his CDA was, and then he also just recently told me how you know how tall and what this guy weighs, and I'm like, how does he get down to a CDA that's that ridiculously low? Because what I thought was a respectable CDA for me, which is kind of you know in the two point two four point two five range, now I'm feeling kind of you know kind of gun shy about it, about <laughs> that it's not as not quite as uh, not quite as solid as I as I once thought. So I um I clear I quickly decided that we needed to have Kurt back on the show to tell. Us all, me, but then all of you as well. Uh, how to how to improve our aerodynamics, Kurt? Sorry for the long preamble. Thank you very much for coming back. Thanks for having me, Michael and Andrew. And I do want to add a little bit of a disclaimer for another one of our previous guests, uh, Alan Hovda. If you're listening, um, you may want to plug your ears because this isn't good news for your uh, what we thought was a phenomenal CDA value. Um, <laughs> you're still not doing poorly, but uh, there's maybe more room for improvement than we thought. But to be to be fair, Dan's not not running off the bike, right? So there's you know it's <laughs> it's true. not an apples to apples comparison. Um, but Alan, yeah, if you're listening, you got to come, you got to you got to you know step up your game a little bit. So. <laughs> So yeah, uh, let's let's talk about this uh, this photo of Dan. Um, I'll uh, I'll shoot him a note to see if we can if we can have his permission to share it because uh, well it was on Instagram but uh, I still want to be you know tick all my boxes. Um, but listeners, you'll get a sense of uh, of how fast he looks. And then Kurt, um, if this is 
if this is public knowledge, or do you want to talk about what his actual CDA value was? It's probably not fair for us to like talk about it, but we can talk about it being low um, for sure. So we can kind of cut that that bit out. Um, but yeah, I mean, Dan, yeah, I've known him like since first at uni days, and I think you know he he got into cycling. He's obviously from a, an aerodynamics background, and for sure he knows a lot more about aerodynamics than I do. Um, but he was a he was a great guy to learn some things off and to understand how. Um, the demands of certain events, you know, aerodynamics being a massive component of them and how you can interact with that. And yeah, I mean, Dan's doing some great things on the track, on the road, um, with professional cycling on the side, like he's definitely pushing the boundaries. And I think that along with some other people, you know, and I think I've, I've took a little bit of that towards Cycling Canada, we've been able to see these big changes in terms of kind of where aerodynamics can get to and, and where the kind of benchmarks potentially are. Right. So let's uh, let's set some uh, some uh, rough ballpark numbers for folks who are maybe not as you know steeped or or don't live and breathe this stuff. Um, Andrew, do you want to talk about you know from your from your virtual wind tunnel uh, mass data sets what some reasonable uh, kind of high low CDA values are just to give context for people so that when we actually start throwing these these numbers out there uh, folks can get a sense of what's what's you know not not amazing and what's very very good and what some of the maybe the pro triathletes ride yeah absolutely some of the benchmarks that we previously seen that I had interpreted as being good and they're not not bad by any means uh, would be kind of around the 0.23 mark for a CDA. And this was based on a lot of triathlete data and a couple pros tossed in there. Um, and then knowing that my own CDA was slightly higher, um, I assume that I'm always below average for this kind of thing, <laughs> uh, being a bigger athlete. So it's that was kind of where I had interpreted you know, what we should target. So like 0.2 was a good number. Uh, it was a really good number. But then working with some of the... Uh, Cycling Canada athletes, it became obvious that there's actually a lot of room for improvement. Now, granted, some of these athletes, they're track specific, they don't have to run off the bike. There's a lot of optimization that it's, that's occurred because of the um, event specific nature. But uh, knowing that you can get down to the, the 0 0.19, 0 0.18, uh, sometimes 0 0.17, sometimes 0 0.16, uh, like that's almost a 25% improvement in the CDA value which is just absolutely insane by normal standards. And it's, it's really raised the bar for what's possible for a lot of these athletes. And uh, do you have numbers at hand or maybe we can, uh, you know, you can, you can click away while we talk and, and, and present them, but how much of a difference do, does it make? So let's say, for example, there, you'll, it's, it's hard to find triathletes below 0.2, right? I think Alan Havda was below. Mm -hmm. He freely shared his numbers on the show. So I think we're okay to talk about them. Um, but let's say someone who is, you know, who like my, my numbers are around 0 0.24, 0.25. Do you have a sense of the difference between a 0.25 and a 0.2 and let's say, you know, like a, a solid Ironman in terms of time or speed? Well, uh, we can we can go back to someone like Cody Beals, who um, we've shared his numbers before and we've looked at his power output and he's very open about providing that. And I believe at uh, Ironman Montremblant, uh, he was able to basically maintain a 260 watt power output. And I believe he was around four... 24 something for the bike, maybe a little okay. bit less than that. Um, and it is a fairly hilly bike course. So it's not, it's not like we're looking at Yeah, it's about at 1800 a, meters total yeah, or 1900 yeah. so that's, meters That's a pretty substantial amount of climbing. 
and uh, yeah, and it might have been faster than that even. I can't remember the exact number, but um, but his his power output and his CDA was probably around the 0.215 range. Okay. So that's um, like that's an excellent performance in that in that respect. So there's there's nothing wrong with that at all. But if he were to be faster, uh, or if he were to have lower drag, then um, I'm just kind of punching numbers into a calculator as we're speaking here. Um, so I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Yes, you did. Thank you. <laughs> His bike was four, uh, <laughs> four twenty fifty two at Chamblon. Okay, so I wasn't. You were too very far close. Off. Yeah. Um, oh, that's why I had one one foot. Uh, squared for his frontal area. That's um, probably not accurate. <laughs> probably has lost significant amounts of weight. <laughs> he, looked pretty, he looked pretty healthy yesterday when I saw him. I don't think he was that low. Yeah. So if he's um, if he's maintaining a 0.22 CDA, for example, um, at his 260 watts, he would be doing around 42 kilometers an hour, which is, uh, I believe, pretty close to where he was. Uh, maybe a little bit slower, but again, there's a lot of climbing in that course. But let's just say he went down to the 0.18 level, um, and that like that's getting into really competitive territory. But that bumps him up two and a half kilometers an hour. Holy smokes! Um, okay, and that is not a small time savings. That's like for these guys, 10 to 15 yeah, minutes. yeah. Especially especially when you're already at the pointy end, already north of 40 kilometers an hour for an Ironman course. That's really yeah. that's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Usually you're happy to get like a 0.1, 0.2 kilometer an hour improvement, but uh, yeah, going with two and a half kilometers an hour at a 0.18 CDA is incredible. And then if we take these these benchmarks, albeit for some athletes that are highly optimized and uh, sometimes a bit smaller in stature than Cody, uh, and if we get down to a 0.16, that would take him from almost 41 or sorry, almost 42 kilometers an hour at 260 watts to uh, 46.2 <laughs> So if he was doing a relay and was, you know, a, a half a foot shorter and smaller, maybe. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, if we could get him down to that number, then, <laughs> then the sky's the limit really. Like wow. that's, that's world beating. Um, because I don't think anyone there's, uh, Andrew Starkwitz has done, I believe a sub four hour bike split or, He's right on the cusp of it. I can't remember the exact number right now, but it's extremely close one way or another, mm-hmm. whether it's just above or just below four hours. Um, but that works out to 45 kilometers an hour for an Ironman. Um, so it's that's a pretty phenomenal speed, but he's also an extremely powerful rider. Um, and Cody, definitely nothing wrong with maintaining 260 watts for four and a half hours. But uh, um, if he added another 40 watts to that to get up to the, the Starkey Lionel Sanders level, um, then that, uh, <laughs> so 310 Watts at the same 0.16 CDA is almost 50 kilometers an hour. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah, that's unheard yeah. of then. So obviously, well, that's what happens. I mean, to generate the kind of power that Lionel and, and Andrew generate, they're bigger. Yeah. Right? They're, they're like, they, they're bigger they, and, it's, it's, yeah. And there's going to be a trade off not... of metabolic efficiency, uh, versus the position you're in. And that's, that's they're a big part of it where, if you're trying to do uh, a longer event, then you have to to make more compromises in terms of being able to generate that power for longer. But um, Kurt, I guess from from your standpoint, what what limitations are there for shorter events, or what uh, what other things can you optimize for shorter events that maybe put aerodynamics ahead of the the longer duration power generation? Yeah, yeah. I think the other thing, just to note on what you were saying as well, the other way you could look at it is. Um, can you just do less power for the same speed? If you're running mm-hmm. off it and you're talking about marathon performance, you know, any, any what saving is a, 
is a benefit for the run speed. And I think we definitely will see, and we are already seeing, you know, like you look at overall times in Ironman, the only, the main difference and why people are going crazy fast nowadays is the bike leg compared to where it was two or three years ago. You know, the run's relatively similar, the swim, mm-hmm. pretty similar, but the bike leg, you know, and we're now talking an hour off what people used to do. Um, yep. So it's definitely because of aerodynamics. And I remember, um, you know, I remember a, a guy who I used to know back in back in the UK, a guy called Matt Bottrell. He's quite a famous uh, time trialist in, in the mm-hmm. UK yeah, scene. Yeah. And he actually went to Ironman basically because he wanted to try and break um, the, the four-hour limit for the for the bike leg. Um, unfortunately, the swim took so much out of him. <laughs> I think by the time he, <laughs> by the, cause he wasn't a natural swimmer, I think um, I can't remember if he, if he did it or not, but he was pretty close. Um, and that's... Uh, because of his time trying prowess. And I know the other day he put something on social media saying he'd done a, a sub 20 minute 10 miler um, off 310 watts, which is, oh is pretty impressive. Oh my he, I think he said his CDA was you know, 0.16 and he's a, a six foot plus guy. Um, I mean, he's very optimized and he now his business is around that stuff, but it just shows you that, um, you know, where that kind of technology has gone and moved forward is, he can still do 50k an hour for 310 watts, which is pretty impressive. That's unreal. And I mean, I've probably said it already, but I want to reemphasize, and we've talked about this on the show in the past, that there, there's so many things that are kind of, you know, we're, we're, we're really squeezing those marginal gains. And there's not, you know, there's, there's a watt here and a watt there. And you put ceramic bearings on, you get your watt, you clean your chain and you use Lubex instead of Y. And, you know, you write, run the right tire pressure, although that could be more than a couple of watts. But this is this is huge. So um, yeah, let's let's really dive in. Yeah, and I think it's, it most of it's come from necessity. You know, the speeds that we're talking about and that relationship between speed and power isn't linear. You know, it's um, it, it, you have that cubic relationship. So yep. it just means that when you are going at these speeds, the power differences are just so great that people are now really starting to recognize. And and I think the other thing is that the technology around aerodynamics is is so much better now. You you know. You can measure it pretty easily. You can, as long as you have a power meter, speed sensor, and you can, you know, first way you can do it is just with a bit of math. And then you've got these error sensors coming out and you've got track systems and you've got, uh, you know, best bike split on my windsock, things like that online, which can start to help you. So people are starting to get a real understanding of it. And then I know in the UK, for sure, one of the big pushes is that, you know, there's wind tunnels now available for the public consumer, which is unheard of really. Um, and you know, it's still probably pushing the kind of limits in the UK and that again, like knowing people who work in these wind tunnels, you can just see the evolution of what numbers potentially can be because they've just tested so many people, tried so many things. Um, and I think that gives you a real sense of where that kind of scope is. And once you know where people can potentially be, um, and I think I'll have to be careful talking about this cause that's just kind of. Uh, my job you know you don't want to tell everyone where they should be because then they start looking yeah of course <laughs> and for a point of reference the one thing i just want to toss in here is saying um basically for cody at his 0.22 initial cda to maintain that 46 kilometers an hour that i mentioned that he could do with the the reduced cda um it would take 340 watts instead of 260 at his current position <laughs> so like that's that's a massive increase like that's pushing you beyond that's as power for a sprint or something yeah yeah exactly so that's that yeah. might be a five minute power versus a five hour power level wow 
No, you're you're not giving Cody quite okay. enough credit. Let's say a sprint triathlon. Okay, yeah. yeah. I'm just thinking in terms of my own. I can I can I can do I can do five minutes. <laughs> I can do five minutes at that wattage, and that's yeah, that's not fair to Cody. All right. Anyway, yeah. in, in context though, it would take a substantial amount of power to be able to generate that speed. Right. Right. So, Kurt, what do we, uh, you know, look, I think it's unre- it's unreasonable for us to get to the, you know, the, the Dan Bingham kind of numbers. But what about uh, what are some of the you know, kind of the, you know, in your experience, in your opinion, both with work with Cycling Canada, but also in your, you know, and you having seen uh, the age group triathlon world, what are some of the uh, maybe the easy fixes and the less easy fixes that uh, that folks can make? Yeah, in terms of things that people can do, um, you know, I think looking at trying to reduce their CDA is, if they can, try and find a measure of it. And, you know, there's loads of really good um, options out there. There's virtual wind tunnel, there's real wind tunnels, there's collecting your data on tracks and, you know, aero sensors, things like that. And this technology is becoming more and more accessible. So I think that's the first kind of step is try and understand kind of if you've got a valid measurement so you can understand um, if you're changing something, what's going to happen. And I think the first caveat with aerodynamics is, you know, there's some things that generally work with most people, but every individual has to be treated as its own separate system. And, you know, we've seen across our athletes that you can't just try and follow the same protocol with everyone in terms of what you're doing to them, because they are different shapes of different sizes and aerodynamics is way more complicated. Sure than that and you know more complicated than we understand and we at the end of the day we're just trying to change the whole system so we've got to kind of give that some credit but yeah um that's the first thing i would say is trying to understand where you're at and then from there we we generally find that um the first thing that we look at really with our riders is kind of um looking at the front end and looking at that that integration of stack height and things like that and Um, You know, historically, I think people have believed that making it as low as possible on the front is the is the best way to go forward. And um, sometimes that can be can be right with certain athletes. But we tend to find if you play around, there is um, opportunities to look at higher stack heights and and um, have still really beneficial in terms of the aerodynamics. Um, And then you've also got the biomechanical interaction, which I think is super important to understand as well, even in short term events, you know, that you don't want to compromise um output by just reducing input um mm. if 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 possible so that's really important and then i guess without giving too many things away the other thing to do is once you've kind of got to a point where you're settled is is really training that position um i think that's the biggest thing that people don't do is that you know they do the most of their rides on a road bike or if they do it on the on the on the tt bike they maybe do it on a trainer and they spend three quarters of the time not in position. And <laughs> if, if they are in position, they're doing really low power. And, you know, I'm a big advocate of getting out on your bike with, you know, close to race setup as possible and hitting it when it's safe, high speed in position and really focusing on training that position as much as possible so that it becomes second nature and the biomechanics and the, the sight, the vision, the sensations are all becoming more and more tuned in so that when you do get on race day, actually it is normal because most people don't do that. And most people see this, this big drop off in, in performance, both from their best aero because they're not training, but also from the power output in that position. So for me, that's something that um, we really work on. And that's a huge point because I will fully admit that uh, when I'm on the trainer, I get a little bit lazy. Like I'm focused on just completing the workout as opposed to completing the workout in the prescribed position. And 
I 100% realize that that's something I need to tackle, but just haven't. <laughs> so there's no excuses there. It's just, um, I think that the people just need that reminder uh, when they're training. So whether it's, you know, a piece of tape that you put on the bar is saying, you know, don't be lazy or, or something like that, that just constantly reminds you to train in that position that you're going to race in. That's probably a big improvement right there. Yeah. Making it a priority and just um, making it one of your training goals from that session as well. You know, people talk about the physiological gains they want to make from training, but I think anything you can do to reduce the cost of, of performance should be trained as well. Um, and I think that's super important. Uh, other things as well, like people, um, you know, not wearing their, uh, their race helmets a lot. And I know you look like a bit, bit of a tool riding around in your era, <laughs> but, um, yeah, it amazes me that people, you know, only ever wear the aero helmet for the very race. And you just think you don't know if your head's in the right position. You don't know the sounds, the sensations, the vision. Um, I think there's a lot of benefits for riding with some of the equipment that you're going to use on the day quite frequently. Um, stress testing it, testing the vision, testing the sounds. And I think as well, anything you can do to optimize your aerodynamics in training gives you that sense of, understanding what it's like to pedal at high speed and with high energy and high inertia because that's another component people do is you know that most people like to go and do all their big hard sessions hitting hills and doing 20k an hour up a hill trying to hit their power numbers whereas actually their performance is holding you know power numbers at 50k an hour with a you know a higher cadence or whatever and i think people miss miss the boat a little bit there as well in terms of that specificity of training Training with the helmet is an excellent point as well. Even if you're training indoors and you're good about maintaining your position, you still, I would say 99% of the people don't put on helmets for the trainer. Um, and that would allow you to strengthen your muscles a little bit more in your neck. So unless you're doing long rides outside in preparation, um, then having the helmet on in the trainer, having some kind of representative weight uh, that would significantly help neck strength for the next time you do go to an outdoor ride. And I, I personally suffered from that when I was doing Ironman Cozumel last year because um, it was November in Alberta, which is not really an outdoor riding time. Um, I think the snow was about eight feet deep at that point, or at least it felt like that. Um, so all my training was indoors and I just hadn't adequately prepared. So I could have ridden with my helmet on in the trainer, but I didn't. Um, and again, that, uh, that came back to bite me and it really felt terrible once I got on the bike, uh, because it had been so long since I had ridden outdoors. Yeah. So, um, one thing that you, you, you talked about Kurt, that, uh, that I want to spend a bit of time, uh, digging into is helmet and head position. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's obviously a very important component of the, of the whole package because I think it's one of the, you know, the position of your head as an athlete on a, on a time trial bike is probably the greatest positional variable, uh, other than of course, like sitting up and not being, you know, in, in the, in the aero extensions, which of course, you know, that's, that should be said because it's, it probably is obvious, but if you're not riding an arrow, then you're kind of doing it wrong unless you're below a certain threshold speed, which Andrew and I can, can talk about if you like. Um, but if you're, you know, assuming that you are an arrow and your elbows are where they're supposed to be and that your hands are where they're supposed to be, um, 
your head is the biggest variable and because it can it can move around and usually does quite a bit. So once you've gone through the process of uh, finding the most aerodynamic helmet for your position and figuring out where your head needs to be to be the most aerodynamic while still being able to see as much of the road as, you know, you're comfortable seeing or not seeing. Uh, any ideas, any tips for training to keep your head in that position? Like how would you, you know, you talked about sights and sounds. So I want you to talk a little bit more about that. How would you know in training that you're holding the right position so that you can kind of, you know, you, you get that proprioceptive, um, feedback ingrained in your brain so that you can do it on race day. Yeah, it's a really good point. So I think the first thing, um, just regarding kind of head position is, um, what I found from kind of doing a lot of the testing that we do is that a lot of your ability to put your head in a certain place is actually dependent on kind of your, your shoulders okay. um, and, and how um, flexed your shoulders are in terms of extension or not. And what, what you tend to find is that um, people who have difficulty getting their head down, a lot of the times it's because their shoulders are in full extension because they're trying to get their front end so low. And by doing that, essentially you can't, it's really difficult to get your neck down because your shoulders are at full full extension. Whereas it, we tend to find if you can bring people up a little bit and give them some support to push back on, actually allows their shoulders to be relaxed more and it actually takes away that tension and it gives people more ability to get their overall system and their head lower down. So even though you brought the front up slightly, if you took a frontal picture of people, you'd find that uh -huh. their overall system would actually be lower because they're able to hold their head um, lower than the, the height of increase that you've got on their back just by lifting their arms up because their shoulders change position. So that's a really um, useful thing to play around with with people who are really struggling to get their head down is might might be just the way their shoulders are interacting and their ability to, to use their neck muscles. Um, but yeah, in terms of training your head, obviously riding outside is is one way of doing it for sure and and listen to to sounds and feedback it depends what kind of helmet you have there's things you can do in terms of um reducing the gap behind your head and mm -hmm. and how you can you can manipulate that doing sessions on the trainer with with uh, mirrors and taking photos and video i think can be really important especially early on to start to visualize can you do it for a minute yeah can you do it for two minutes yeah can you do it for four minutes and you know we sometimes do sessions where um, that is the focus. So you're doing intervals, but intervals for training your position, you know, the, the intensity of exercise stays the same, but actually it's more about the, the, the stress. If you want to call it, that is all about that maintaining that position that we know is going to be optimized and, um, having the visual cues to look at that. And th I think they're really important things. And then, you know, with the adoption of all the sensors out there now and things like that, like you can see it in real time, if, if you really want to get nerdy about it, you can, equip your bike with the right devices and you can move your head and you can see massive changes in, in, in power output, CDA and things like that for same relative speed. So um, there's definitely technology now for people to, to really dive into that. And, and for me, not to have any excuses around, they don't know kind of how to go about optimizing their head position and aerodynamics. Cool. Do you think that uh, you that that point you made about uh, sh shoulder tension is really interesting? Do you think that, uh, and so you said, obviously, in the, sometimes with a slightly higher front end, you can you can lower your head. Um, have you seen any correlation with the ability to get that low head position and kind of the the narrow stance versus the wide stance of the elbow pads, like with the more internal rotation of the shoulders for a narrower 
narrower elbow pad, does that have an effect on head position? Or have you not seen that? Potentially, yeah. I mean, um, for sure, there's something to look into. And like I said, every individual athlete, we we try and treat as a separate case. Um, for sure. Um, I think the width for sure has a massive difference on potential aerodynamics for, for individual riders, but I wouldn't necessarily say one way or the other affects either aerodynamics or the head position from from my experiences anyway. So it's it, it, pretty much all of these. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and you'll, your your answer is going to be, you, you got to go test it because it's individual. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm being unkind, but you know, it's, <laughs> that seems to, I mean, and honestly, in my experience with uh, VWT, when, uh, when we were doing scans with Andrew's tech, um, yeah, that's, that bears out for sure. Yeah. I think position stuff is very individualized. And then I think, you know, there's also some, some general themes around the other side of aerodynamics. So equipment, choices clothing um and there you know there is that level of individualization still but i think there's some more um general themes that kind of fit across that you know especially when you're talking about just re- reducing overall um energetic cost of exercise not just an area aerodynamics but looking at you know drivetrain efficiency and rolling resistance and things like that they're all sure. essentially fitting into the same pot and i think a lot of them rules are probably a little bit more generalized than positional stuff which really is quite individualized for, for most riders okay i'm gonna ask you one last thing about position because i i take your point and i will I'll stop harassing you about it um but of all the you know the elements some of which we've talked about others maybe we haven't talked about um and i'll throw them out there which ones do you find make a difference or is it kind of all of them so we've talked about head position we've talked about kind of you know um, the, the front end height, the stack height of the bike, uh, elbow pad width, uh, hand position is one we haven't really touched on. Um, any like, you know, saddle position, maybe potentially, although usually those are kind of, you know, my opinion on that is, is, well, I'll talk about it after your answer. Um, which ones of those do you think make a difference or, you know, make a substantial difference? And the reason I ask this question is because if, if folks are going to listen to our advice here and, you know, try different things, what should they be trying? Like what levers can they operate to see what the, you know, kind of the trade-off between ergonomics or power delivery and aerodynamics are, which, which positional changes should they be trying to make? Yeah. Um, I, I think the first thing, like you said, is just, you really want to try and minimize any negative effects on output. And like sometimes for right. sure there are, you know, and you, you weigh them up against the potential gain you're going to get from aerodynamics versus output. But I think if you're smart about it, there are ways of achieving both at the same time. Um, and I think one of them, you know, the, the one that we have looked into quite a lot is that is the the front end stack height and, and really looking at, optimizing that for each individual rider both from a hip angle biomechanics point of view but also from a from an aerodynamics point of view and i'm not saying it works for all riders but it's something that i think um if you talk to a lot of people in aerodynamics it tends to to find that most people can find better aerodynamic positions with more with more stack than maybe what was potentially originally believed um okay so that's that's something to look at that I would say is the first thing to look at. And then, yeah, um, like you said, hand positioning, it, it can be key, can not be key in certain people. Um, looking at that interaction of the head for sure is, is super critical because that's part of that frontal area. And I think that can be usually is the highest point um, on someone's system. And I think if you can make the back the highest point, if possible, then that really helps in terms of that 
aerodynamic drag but again that's you know a pretty extreme situation but that's what's kind of needed to get to them to the to the kind of lower numbers that potentially needed at the at the top level right looking at it as a system um you brought up the point of changing the front end first and being the highest priority and it, it makes sense because all the flow coming off the front end if you disturb the flow or if you have something that's inefficient at the front it can have negative impacts all the way down your body by other things that may not otherwise be negative negatively impacting your aerodynamics so if you make the proper choices early on so to speak in the airflow then that can have positive effects all the way down so it can be a bit of a knock-on effect that you're getting from that too yeah definitely do we want to talk about equipment? Um, you know, we've we've touched on these things in the past. Andrew and I did a kind of a standalone show on uh, you know going faster and our thoughts on equipment. But let's uh, you mentioned that in in an earlier answer. So let's talk about some of your thoughts around uh, equipment from things that make you know maybe the biggest difference to maybe things that make marginal differences. Yeah, sure. Um, I think you know if we're talking about triathlon, understanding. Um, that kind of interaction of the, what speed they're aiming at riding at and the, the equipment and kit that they're choosing from tri suit. Do you go with sleeves or not? Do you have to think about cooling? Um, there's lots of data online um, about, you know, which suits potentially perform better than others, but getting hold of them if possible and, um, and testing them can be really important. Looking at the fit and things like that, being smart about where you put your numbers. And I'm sure you have heard you guys talk about things like that before, helmet choices you know if you can lend five different helmets off your friends and, and test them for yeah. you and don't, don't expect you know the same helmet to be to be best for everyone but i think yeah you know if you can narrow it down to getting hold of some some helmets and testing them i think that's a really good start to to really understand your kind of whole system things like do you look at overshoes how difficult are they to 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 put on compared to the, the gains you're potentially going to get from them, looking at calf cards, things like that. Again, you have to think about the cooling elements and stuff, but there's definitely lots of options from a, an equipment point of view um, to look at aerodynamics within triathlon and, and, you know, and definitely within time trial. For me, there's in time trial cycling and TT in there's, there's no real excuses to, to not run everything you've got um, and really try and optimize each individual bit, be that, Rolling resistance, drivetrain efficiency, clothing choices, positional choices, training them positions, nutrition, warm up, everything like that. I think you know you're only doing a twenty minute effort, let's say this, and a second could be the win or third. So I think it's really key, and and that's why we're seeing such big um, pushes in in the time trial scene because everyone has to to roll everything they've got. Whereas I think in triathlon, it's dragged out over such a long time that. Um, you can still win and not be fully optimized, um, be it you're putting more energy out on the bike, but you can run faster off it or, or things like that. And I think we are starting to slowly see that kind of trickle down into the triathlon world. And I think another point to make with triathlon as well is that um, because you are out there for so long, sometimes compromising a little bit of your time during transition. So if you take the time to put on overshoes, um, you could end up saving that time and more during the actual bike leg so it, it becomes a bit of a trade-off so you may not see the benefit right away but by the time you finish your bike then it becomes meaningful yeah and also potential energy as well i think if you're looking at doing a you know seven or eight hour which the you know the top male pros are looking at or doing a you know from a good age group is 10 hours whatever times they're massive amounts of energy expended and i think the, you know the people who do well are probably the people who can 
utilize the the least amount of energy as possible to get through into that marathon not eating into their energy stores and you know being able to fuel as efficiently as possible so if you can save a few hundred calories over that bike leg by just having a lower output i think that's only ever going to have a, a positive effect on your kind of run performance that's a really interesting way of thinking about it just from a straight up energetics because you're absolutely right kurt i think it's you know it's uh it's a it's a race to the bottom when it's uh, when it's Ironman time. It's it's whoever you know runs out of gas. Well, I don't want to say last, but closest to the finish line. You know, whatever slows down the least. It slows down the least. That's it. So being being mindful of of the energetic requirements. That's a really interesting way. So even you know you you probably in our quest for best optimal optimal optimization for a lack of a better way to say it um taking an extra you know 30 seconds in transition to put put on overshoes maybe the right call for uh for uh an iron man if it saves you you know five minutes in your run because you've got more more uh you know you've, you've spared that glycogen a little bit better on the bike yeah i think people are now getting to that level where they're starting to to think about these things and and really starting to to break it down because we know you can only put so much fuel in fuel in and that's going to get digested and we know it's a ticking time bomb and like you said it's um that run is key and whoever slows down the least on the run is usually the person that they can come out and win and um yeah i think it's, it's super important to start thinking of the knock-on effect of the swim and, and the bike and because the bike's the biggest time component for me it makes sense to look at how you can reduce that that cost as much as possible as well as also trying to go as fast as possible um, so for me, the aerodynamics piece sits really well in there as long with, you know, the, the physiological demands of doing a, a four hour kind of steady state performance. I wonder if there's a really good way to model this stuff. I mean, there are, you know, if you get, if you can get, you know, your, your somewhat reasonably accurate CDA deltas, and we've talked about whether or not, you know, so long as they're repeatable number. So as long as you can say that, you know, A is faster than B by this percentage, even if the, you know, the, the raw numbers are not necessarily exactly, exactly accurate. Um, if there's a, a really, I suppose, you know, with best bike split, like you mentioned, there's a, there's a way that you can model it, that you can say, if you, you know, if you can make yourself three more, 3% more aerodynamic, you know, your CDA drops by whatever value that would be. Um, you can plug that into a best bike split on the same course and see, you know, either how much time you save at the same power or what, what's the power required for the same wattage for the same, for, for a given, uh, duration to complete because they've got both options in that platform. So yeah, that's probably, that'll be, that'll be an interesting experiment. I think that's, that's something that I think, I bet you're right. Like the, the most serious athletes, age groupers and pros are definitely doing that, that mathematics. And I think as well, you can see from the setups that people are looking at, um, that sustainable drag as well. So it's, you know, like we've talked about it before, but you can, you do a one-off really good numbers, but if you're going to do a, a four hour or five hour bike leg, actually what you need is that sustainable low, low drag, low CDA. And I think, looking at some of the interventions around, you know, like um, custom front ends or um, looking at kind of how the extensions now are being produced from various companies that they're all trying to not only increase raw aerodynamics, but also that sustainability. If you've got full contact across your whole forearms from your elbow all the way up to your hands, your ability to actually hold a good position is, is massively increased because you've now got so much more support and stability. Um, you know, and I think some of the top, 
if you look at some of the top um, Ironmen who are at the front end, they're all looking at them options now because they need to hold that position for such a long time. Yeah, absolutely. It's useless if you can't hold it, right? I mean, that's we've we have talked about it in the past that if it's, you know, you can you can be as optimized as you like, but if you can't if you can't sustain it, I, I'm 100 percent with you. Cool. Are we uh, are we missing anything, guys? I think that was pretty comprehensive. Uh, is there anything that we want to um, look at as well on, on top of what we've talked about already? Well, there is one area that I think deserves a little bit of attention that we haven't really touched on much, but that would be um, the fabrics and the materials that people are wearing for suits. Oh, of course. Yeah. So there there are an obvious number of faux pas. So if you have something that's um, either heavily wrinkled or if it's loose and baggy and flapping, flapping is the worst. Uh, flags create an incredible amount of drag. Um, so as a side note, for people who drive around with flags on their cars supporting you know, their hockey team or whatever, just drives me insane because it's compromising so much efficiency. But uh, that's... Did you see the, uh, the, the, the Trump boat with 16 flags sink in that, you know, the, in that Texas lake? I'm I sure did that not was... see that. I heard about it. Yeah. But um, yeah, yeah that's, that's another point is uh, if you put flags <laughs> on your boat, it might sink. So, so the, the, the drag that comes from inefficient material can be extremely high. Um, but what are some things that you would look at in terms of having a, a low drag setup, uh, like a low drag fit and a low drag material? What would you look for as an amateur, Kurt? I think the first thing that you, you alluded to, I think they're both really important in terms of the, the, the texture and the textile that you choose and then also the fit. So I think it's really key to to look at both of them and also understand how potentially the texture might change depending on the, the fit that you have. Um I mean, it's difficult with buying stuff off the shelf to obviously get a perfect fit. And, you know, there are places now where you can look at customization. And I think there's definitely um, a big future in that area. Wink, wink. Um, but uh, I also think, yeah, starting to have a dig around and understand, um, you know, what potential companies or fabrics that you are looking for for the relative speed you're going to do. Um, because that is one thing that really does have a, an interaction with speed and you know this the kind of clothing that you want to wear on the track at 60 kph might be well will be very different to what you're going to ride at 40 kph in an ironman for instance so having a look online and looking at the good companies that release their data and looking at speed variability of their data you can see quite easily that there are big big shifts and it's very rare that one suit will be best across all all speed ranges um and i know looking online there's there's loads of people now releasing their data because that's uh you know a really key transparent thing unfortunately it is also a bit like when people release their data about bikes and you know everyone's got the fastest bike or whatever your angle but you know there are i think enough people doing validation testing you know you can go on youtube and you can you can look at loads of people now testing suits and looking at various cdas there is going to be some individuality in interaction because of your position and your form but um, they give you a good starting point to understand what potential few suits are worth looking at. And then from that point, can you then optimize it further by trying them on yourself, looking at different fits? Um, you know, and like we're saying, if you can measure your drag, I think this is where it becomes super key because you can essentially do the testing yourself without having to you know, go to a wind tunnel or anything like that and find that find the setup that works for you. Yeah, and I think it just comes down to trying a lot of them because fit is something that's very difficult to predict um, with the currently available tools. Like if you're buying something online, uh, as most people are doing right now because of COVID, then it's um, 
basically just a trial and error approach. Like you might come across brands that, uh, that fit tend to fit better, but it might even be one suit to the next that's identical on the shelf. Um, but one is just cut slightly different or the tailoring is slightly different and it just happens to pull, uh, in different places and the fabric wrinkles on one versus not wrinkling on the other, but finding that, that fit that works really well for you, uh, I think is absolutely key in terms of going faster. Yeah, 100% agree. All right, folks, uh, let's do a quick uh, wrap up of uh, of everything that we've talked about. Um, testing is everything. It sounds like that you you know both in in position and in uh, and in clothing, um, finding and experimenting. Um, well, experimenting and then finding the optimal position, the optimal the optimal kit, and then practicing it in training, practicing both the position and then wearing all of your stuff, your helmet, your overshoes, your, um, your, you know, your, the main body of your kit. Uh, that is, that is essential. And that's probably the, the place where most folks are going to find those, uh, those aerodynamic gains. Knowledge is power. Very true. Kurt, thanks very much for, uh, for coming on and sharing your knowledge as always. Uh, always a treat to talk to you. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. And uh, everyone, thank you again for uh, for tuning in and for listening. And um, do rate and review us. Uh, subscribe to the show as well. That helps uh, that helps increase our visibility. And uh, if you like the show, consider supporting us through Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Endurance Innovation. Thanks again.